I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden. Tears of Eden is a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. All guests on Uncertain are sharing their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Tears of Eden. On the Tears website, we feature book reviews, podcast recommendations, and survivor stories. So if you are a survivor of abuse from a church community or are interested in learning more about this subject, I encourage you to check it out. We are also open to submissions from all of you, so if you have a resource you'd like to review or a story of spiritual abuse you'd like to share, please consider sending it to us at tearsofeden.org at gmail.com. I'm here with my friend Nikki, and the first episode we ever recorded together was with Lisa and Jarrett from the I Got Out movement. And Nikki, what did you think of this episode, considering this is our first episode recording together? It was amazing. I love recording and connecting with you, Catherine. And the ladies were just full of wisdom, full of insight, and um, just so glad to be there to just hear the storyline of how, you know, I hashtag I got out, got started and just to just hear and see, you know, the, the passion in their eyes for the work that they're doing. So if, you know, anyone out there is listening, please, you know, check out all their socials and, you know, their podcasts and things of that nature, because they're doing great work for survivors of different various cults. Different various cults. What do you think is something that people will be able to take away from this episode? The power of using your voice, how it is a healing component, you know, sharing our stories. I think Jarette has actually a program to help people journal through helping them to form their story. So I think that for me stuck out a lot. And just, just hearing the inception of the movement, you know, sometimes it just takes one voice. You may think, you know, okay, if I do this, who's going to hear? What is this going to do? But sometimes it just takes one voice, one idea, and it just, you know, can open up many doors for other survivors. So, yeah. Well, let, with that, let's listen to the episode. Yes. I was, <laughs> like, As I was like asking you the question, I was like, I actually don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember either. So I looked at you like, uh-oh. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure they talked about the story and I remember they talked about how they got started. So <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you guys. Oh my gosh. So am I. Nikki is going to potentially be my co-host for Uncertain. So this is our first interview together, but she's like a cult expert too. And so I, I, I'm I wanted her to be here for this conversation. Uh, how are you this morning? Lisa? Well, a few things. I left my earbuds on the table, not charging. Oh, no. So I'm going to do my best. All right. To- All right. So we'll talk fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how you get the good nuggets out of me. <laughs> slow, slow, bro. Right. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about this subject. Um, I know a lot of folks will protest at the idea of a church being a cult or being considered a cult. 
And a phrase that is more welcome is a high control environment. However, there are cultish characteristics in a lot of places. And so you, I know, have also worked with people who have come out of evangelical communities that were cults and cultish. And so for just applying to this audience of folks who are knowing something that is, there's something wrong with the evangelical church and wanting to either do something about it or address the abuse that's happening in the evangelical community, this is an applicable topic for that. So I'm really grateful to be able to talk to you. I would love just to get started here. I would love to hear the background of the I Got Out movement. And you can't just rip off of what you were just saying, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, we're, we're all in the same camp. We all do similar things. So I would love to hear, maybe we'll just start with, are you okay starting Lisa? Start with you and, and then we'll move to Jarette just to hear background of the I Got Out movement and then why each of you, why this is important to each of you. So when I got out of my group January 1st, 2016, I had very little interest besides just kind of figuring out what happened to me, but on a very superficial level in cult education and therapy, the group that I got out of was a therapy based group. So, you know, it's kind of allergic to all that. Anything that had to do with spirituality, therapy, self-help, I didn't want it, any part of it. My, my way of claiming my life back was creative expression. That's how I found my voice. And so it wasn't, I think for a lot of people, the pandemic was a huge awakening. And what happened for me with the pandemic is that my very delicate relationship connection that I had with my daughter was completely fractured because we went different ways on our approach to the pandemic. And at the time, you know, my grandmother duties, that's my main connection with my daughter was taking care of the kids and being backup person for them. And I couldn't do that with their protocols safely. You know, I wanted to be available to take care of my parents if they were to get sick. And it just was, it was delicate. That kind of threw me into a vulnerable place there. And then it was actually watching the vow that was like watching my whole, the, the thing that was really so well done with the vow. And that's HBO's documentary about the Nexium cult is that it really showed the process. I think this is one of the things why that that documentary was so pivotal for so many people is it really showed the process of being baked in. And, you know, you look in the, the first couple episodes and it's like, yeah, I'd love to hang out with these people. They're happy and things are happening and, you know, all of this. And it was by, you know, so I'm watching these episodes just kind of play my life out in a lot, in a lot of ways. When I watched the, I think it was the fifth episode where the branding incident was revealed and it was such a parallel to the abuse that happened in my group that I, I guess I was just like, I've got to do something 
I can't just stand by and not bring light to this issue. And honestly, because of where my daughter had landed, I felt like, you know, she had been influenced in ways that were possibly not her own, you know, that she had influenced from the internet or she had influenced from, you know, the thinking of my group and, in order for me to repair that relationship with her, I felt like I needed to address some of these issues. Can I ask a clarifying question? Sure. The group that you were in, was your daughter a part of that group also? Yeah, she, so I met the leader when I was 19 and she was a one-year-old. And I started taking classes. And then in the course of three or four years, I moved in with him into the main house and became part of the inner circle. And she was raised by him as her surrogate father. Basically, he was her father figure. He was was reluctant for that role. He preferred to not think of her as a daughter, but think of her as another one of our quote unquote tribe, which kind of set the stage for abuses that I learned about after I got out. Mm -hmm. And then when you said, I need to do something about this, when you watched the, the vow, was that because you realized in watching the vow, this is a much bigger issue. Like this is happening more frequently. Um, Honestly, it was really personal for me. It was, it was, I was very motivated by my own sexual trauma, sexual abuse trauma, and what I learned had happened to my daughter. And what happened after I watched the fifth episode is I Googled sadism and cult leader. And I came up with an article that was published in Elsevier magazine. It's a journal, like an academic journal. And it was talking about a case that was tried in Jerusalem of a Hasidic cult leader. And it was actually a win for the the people that were in his group. They determined that they were not consenting adults in the situation because of the coercive control, which really resonated with me. And, you know, with It took me probably four days to digest all that information. And then I reached out to Sarah Edmondson and said, you know, you don't know me, but I want to do something. And I started, you know, I had already laid out all these ideas. I was having all these things about what could potentially help cult survivors transition and claim autonomy in their lives and heal and all of this. And Sarah, I mean, what was interesting about the vow, and this is a, I don't hear this talked about so much, but when the vow came out, everyone that was in it was watching it in real time. I mean, they had seen footage, they had been a part of the footage, but they hadn't seen it, how it was put together. And so when I contacted Sarah, she was also in the midst of just like, seeing all this new information and, you know, how they put it together. It was like kind of a mind blower for her as well. And when I reached out to her, she was really being inundated by all these 
people. So I was among many who were reaching out to her, but she was very gracious in wanting to acknowledge everyone. And so my ideas were heard. Her responses were rather short because there were so many other people reaching out to her, but it was enough for me to keep going with my ideas. And, you know, within a few weeks, I had bought the domain igotout.org and was exploring, you know, how to make a 501c3. And, and then I happened to, I follow Steve Hassan, or I was following at that point, Steve Hassan on Twitter, and I saw him using the hashtag. I got out and, you know, I'd already kind of thought about a hashtag thing because of the way hashtags work to unify so many different voices and the effect that it had with the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and all these things. So when I saw the hashtag, I just reached out to Steve and and told him what I, I talked to his assistant actually and told her these things that I was thinking about. And she was like, well, you just write those down and send that in an email to me because he's actually talking with some people about uh, this hashtag movement idea. And so I sent the email and I met Jarette that day at that meeting. Oh, and behold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was when I got out of the group that I was involved in, for 18 years. I got out in uh, May 28th, 2014. And I had been an educator, like my whole adult life. So to come out of an 18 year involvement, I was like, how, like, what happened? What happened? Like, how could I get, how could I be that lost for that long? And so I focused on really understanding cult, cult dynamics. And the group that I was a part of was a self-help psychological group that focused on working with dreams and also brought in, you know, a number of other kind of new agey kind of concepts, although we poo-pooed new agey, we actually were, but that's a whole nother story. But, you know, I had also, I was born to a large family, grew up Catholic, I have always had an orientation towards um, the spirit, you know, towards like, I have extremely, it, it's, I have extremely fond memories of my being in church. You had mentioned church earlier. And, you know, there's a, for me, there's a, there's a connection there. And part of that, that in me, I think is part of what primed me, what led me, you know, to be involved in this group for 18 years. The first few years were not so much a group, it was really just with the teacher, um, but then it grew into a group. And so, you know, I just dove into studying cult dynamics once I got out. And, and at that time, I'm also watching the Me Too movement unfold and seeing very real changes taking place because of women telling their story. And so there was this kernel that I had been holding in my heart for, for a number of years about creating a hashtag movement for those of us who had gone through what I did, like recognizing indoctrination, recognizing that I had been living a life that was so contrary 
to who I truly am, to, to the values that are actually a core part of me. It was an extraordinary like wake up call, like what is this going on? And I saw that same kind of dynamic happening in the Me Too movement where women had been holding on to their experiences for years or months or decades. And, and the freedom, this something that this speaking out, telling the story. So uh, then I spent, I attended an online panel discussion with Steve Hassan, who I had, I had briefly met Steve years previously because I've been attending and presenting at the International Cultic Studies Association conference for the few years before this. And so I'm in this panel discussion. I knew Steve, you know, was a, a big, big wig. And the way that Steve was talking inspired me to kind of type in the chat my idea about starting a hashtag movement for uh, cult survivors. And at the last minute of this presentation, the uh, facilitator said, oh, we have this comment that I just want to read. It was the only comment she read, and it was my comment. And I was like, oh my God. And so she's reading it, and I see Steve, like, you know, put up his hands and like jump out of his chair and say, yes, yes, this is what's needed. We need a movement that is going to destigmatize cultic involvement, that's going to destigmatize what it is to have gotten so far away from yourself, destigmatize religious abuse and religious trauma and spiritual abuse, all of that. And so seeing his response was like, okay, I guess I'm going to reach out to him, which I did the next day, together with my buddy Mark, who, who knew Steve. So he and Steve have known each other. So we started this email dialogue, talking about throwing out different ideas about what would be a good hashtag to use. I threw out some absurd ones that I had already tried that didn't work, like hashtag hoodwinked or hashtag I see you or hashtag I got out, you know, like stupid. Well, I, I started to say I got out, but when Steve's assistant threw out the idea, hashtag I got out, you, it was like electricity going through the email system. Everybody immediately piped in and said, that's it, that's it, that's it. We were oblivious to the fact that someone on the other side of the country had already purchased the, the domain name, igotout.org, that somebody being Lisa. And probably just a few days before. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was all like so like clockwork. And then we finally had a, we scheduled a meeting. He reads an email out loud to us that Lisa had written. And we were like, get this person on, like, come on. <laughs> like, this is like exactly the, the energy that we need. And within five minutes, you know, she was on the meeting that, you know, one hour meeting turned into, I think two and a half hours of just riffing and feeling the incredible passion for creating a movement that could really try to, you know, destigmatize 
cultic involvement. Nikki, did you have any follow-up questions for Lisa or Jarette? No, not really. I'm just taking in the story. (laughs) Wow. Like the synergy and and there's so many survivors out there that are telling their stories for the first time, especially Lisa, like you talked about the pandemic. I really feel like people had time to sit and people had time to really process. And a lot of people were not going back to their communities, synagogues, churches, and they're like, wait a minute, you know, getting away from the group think and the control and all that stuff like that, things are starting to surface and a lot of people are are reaching out and looking for help. And so I'm just so grateful that you had the idea. <laughs> you guys had the idea and you came together because I'm looking for it to blow up just as much as the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matters as well. One of the things that I guess is really critical to understand about where we're at with, I mean, there is the website and the social media platforms of I Got Out. And we offer, you know, the sharing of stories in an anonymous way if somebody needs that. But it's more the, the, the social media that I Got Out does and the website are to define and support the idea of the hashtag movement. So, you know, it's, It's not on, I mean, at this point right now, and things are really kind of percolating and bubbling right now for I Got Out, but up to this point, I Got Out, the the work of it has been myself and Jarette for the most part. Mm -hmm. So in the future, I would love to have I Got Out do all these things and I see them on the horizon, things are going to be happening, but it really is about individuals sharing their story Mm -hmm. and allowing that hashtag I got out to unify all of our different perspectives, all of the different kinds of high control environments that we left. And I think you're so right, Nikki, in in this phase that we're in, in this process of the pandemic and having the, the stillness and that quiet and the break from the indoctrination process and the grind of keeping us awake all the time and working all the time. This this is just starting. People, you know, are just beginning to wrap their minds around what it was that they were involved in. And, you know, honestly, for Steve Hassan, his main focus for hashtag I got out was for the people that were impacted by these. He thinks it's a psyops. I would agree that it's been leveraged by foreign actors, the psyops operation of the rabbit holes uh, that were made through QAnon, QAnon and, and, you know, conspiracy theories and all these things so that Some of these people, and this was happening before the pandemic hit, but people were getting kind of funneled into these ways of thinking that the algorithms created, you know, let's thank Facebook and, and, you know, all of these, well, if you liked this, then why don't you watch that, you know, these referral algorithms and his vision 
for I got out was to be an off ramp for those people. And to be honest, we haven't seen a lot of that yet. And we've been involved just lately in the last few months with a few journalists that were looking for people to tell their hashtag I got out stories of leaving these conspiracy theory systems. And they couldn't find many people to talk about this. And so there's this like, I think phase of self-reflection and then there's a phase of shame and grief Mm -hmm. that happens after somebody gets lost. And it's when you look back and see what you actually believed, it can be a little bit embarrassing and you, you probably hurt some people in the process. And I mean, that's a whole huge thing to have to work through before you can actually put words to what happened and, you know, be an activist or an an advocate for survivors or any of these things. It's, it's, it takes time to process all that. When we were running Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month in January, I know that we had connected to discuss whether or not we would maybe combine this. And I had hesitated to use the I got out uh, hashtag and associate any of this with a cult because it's hard enough for people to understand I went through abuse or this thing that I loved was abuse. But then to make that jump to, oh, it actually might've been a cult. Like that was just a much, much more difficult jump to make. And so I would love to hear from you just how you would define cult versus a high control environment. Cause I know that high control environment, is a little bit easier to stomach, especially for people who are coming out of their, their church environment. So could you describe that a little bit? What, how would you describe a cult? How would you compare that to a high control environment or do you use them interchangeably? I want to jump in super quick and then I want to pass it to Jurette. But the thing that I wanted to say, number one, Spiritual Beast Month next year, number one. <laughs> It'll take some time to get Amen. this idea. Amen. And for me, when I got out of my group, you know, that I had been in for 30 years and had been called a cult from other people on the outside. Oh, no, they don't understand. They don't get it, blah, blah, blah. The summer before I left, I read an article that used the words high demand group. And you know, in the beginning of the article, though that term, those three words totally resonated with. My life was over the top high demand. I didn't have, I lived in the house. I was, you know, 100%, 24-7. And it wasn't until, you know, much further down in the article that this person started using the terms interchangeably. And sneaky. Sneaky and really well done because that really, I read that article probably six to 12 times before I actually left to just kind of help me understand what it was that I was actually involved in. But I would love to see, and I will say, since I left, I probably read just a handful of books about cults. And so, you know, I kind of jumped headlong into this I got out thing without having all of that background information that Jarette has. 
And so I'm in a phase right now where I'm feeling like I need to slow down a little bit on my outward advocacy work and really take in some, some foundational, fundamental background of, you know, the greats, the Robert J. Lifton, Margaret Singer, and Alexander Stein, and read some more memoirs and kind of get some language around what it is that we're looking at. So I'm super excited about this new phase. And uh, Jarrett, tell yeah, us about how what you, you define, think. <laughs> define a cult versus a high control environment. And you know, language is such a complex reality. And the way that the way that I approach and experience this whole kind of world is also very much from the personal experience. So, you know, there might be two people in the same church who have completely different experiences. You know, I know the group that I was a part of which I call an everyday cult. There were people, I, you know, there definitely were other people who experienced it as a cult and lots of people that didn't. So there's a couple of different things there. One is that in what I call the everyday cult, there's the way that that term came to me was by studying, like immersing myself in cultic dynamics and recognizing things like black and white thinking the control of time, the use of keeping people sucked in, keeping, keeping them awake and engaged, having a carrot, having a spiritual carrot that is really, really enticing. The use of um, shame, the use of kind of drawing on our innate fear of annihilation or our innate fear of failure and actually reinforcing that and then using, harnessing that enormous amount of energy. Fear is, you know, one of the, I mean, we see that around the pandemic issue in a big way, but it can be so controlling. And so once you've got, once you've established that kind of a, a narrative, then you can, people can become more, more and more and more involved, not knowing that they're actually separating themselves from their, their core values. So I would consider a cultic environment or an abusive spiritual environment, to me, there's, there's differences, but more similarities than differences. You know, one of the basic ways that I think about it is that when a person has gone through that process of indoctrination, a process that has slowly or sometimes quickly, like with the internet and radicalization, these techniques have been honed so specifically that it can happen very quick. You know, that it becomes a system. It's systematic to, to take the human, natural human vulnerabilities and harness them you know, a nefarious intent, through nefarious intent. And then the person has lost access to their capacity to make decisions for themselves. They've lost their capacity for discernment. They've lost their capacity for critical thinking. And I don't want to use the word lost because it can always be, it's not like it's really lost because as long as we're alive, you know, we do, we do have some for sure. And, and yet it's, what is it that's going to wake that up? 
this particularly when we've gone through a process where we've gotten so far away from our core values. So when I said that, I think of that as more of a personal thing, like you, you get to ask yourself, have I gone through a process where I was that far away? And if that's the case, there was some level of indoctrination that took place. And, and coming out, rising out of that indoctrination, I think is really, or, or waking up to the indoctrination um, is where things get, we get to realign with who we really are. Jarrett, when you were telling your story, you talked about me coming from a Catholic environment and that that sort of primed you for this group. Can you say a little bit about that? I think it's both, you know, kind of the positive and the negative and everything in between. Like when I use the word primed, I don't, I think of that as being more like the, you know, the negative, the hooks that led me into indoctrination. And I think there were some. And those, I think, quite simply can be summed up as patriarchal, authoritarian kind of mindset. So that, I think, was a kind of priming. Because you saw that as normal. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, you know, my, that's, that's the way I was raised. I'm the middle child of seven kids. I, you know, it was normal to kind of toe the line as, as we were asked to, needed to, you know, you just kind of, you just do it. But, you know, there also were the parts of me that, you know, I loved the, the ritual of church. There was something very oh, comforting. There was something like there was this way, like I can remember like my innocence, like going through first Holy Communion. And I can remember vividly this experience of, we were doing our practice before the actual big day. And the, the, my teacher who was a nun, Sister Marie Celeste, you know, was kind of talking to us in her gentle sing-songy voice. She was a really lovely nun. We also had the ones that were harsh and would whack your hands. Your the mean mouth. nuns. There were the mean nuns too. So we had, we definitely had both, but Sister Marie Celeste was lovely. And I remember this experience of being in the church, doing our practice run, and suddenly like being filled with this kind of joyful excitement and realizing how important it was, the gesture of like putting your hands together in prayer, that that something about that was just so beautiful. And I remember saying something in my innocent second girl kind of self, you know, to the, to the, my teacher, to the nun and how she acknowledged me, but it was, but it was actually something that rose from me that this beautiful kind of acknowledgement. He praised. Yeah. Yes. Because I think in indoctrination, there is a ritualistic element to it, but then ritual itself and practice itself is not indoctrination. And I think that that's a key distinction we have to make, but what makes this so nefarious because it seems innocent 
these indoctrination practices. Did you have something you wanted to say, Lisa? I do, but I don't want to jump into the point you're making because it's really good. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that that's why when you, Lisa, were saying that yours was a more self-help therapy group and how getting self, getting help, getting therapy, getting someone to help you, that itself is not dangerous, but you learn to see that as dangerous because it came from, I think you were the one who said a nefarious place and there was a nefarious intent behind that and something like communion this beautiful practice and as you were describing it Jarette, like I've had that experience in communion too just like this joy in this ritual and to think that this beautiful thing could then be used to twist someone and to indoctrinate someone and to play with their mind is disgusting uh, to say the least, but then why it's so difficult for people who have been in this to understand what happened because it could, and, and why, when you're trying to explain it to someone, they're like, what's wrong, what's wrong with communion? (laughs) Like they just don't, they don't get it. They don't get it. Cause it, it, it it seems harmless on the surface, but yes, go ahead, Lisa. What were you going to say? Well, my background is really different in how you guys grew up. I grew up the child of children of the 60s. So, you know, my environment growing up, my my dad was a seeker. You know, they had me in 66 by 69. They were into the counterculture and he was exploring, you know, at the time, I think around 69 is when the Beatles introduced the Maharishi. And so there's this whole influx of Eastern philosophy and spiritualism that was immersed into the culture at that point. And that's what my dad latched onto that Carlos Castaneda, who was, you know, into the Native American shamanism. So that's, that was my environment growing up. And you know, my dad and my, my mom are also exploring communal living. So, you know, when I was five years old, we lived in Colorado on a commune with a bunch of teepees, you know, just really different from a lot of people's upbringing, right? But what that did is, you know, you talk about indoctrination. So it set me into, you know, what I what my comfort was, was this sort of spiritual space of community. And I think there is, you can't say enough for the human need for community. That's how we have survived by being together and helping each other out. And, you know, just to, I guess, go back to the idea of the hashtag movement for a second, that is sort of the intent behind the hashtag is to connect people that wouldn't maybe normally be connected. And the idea, the concept between the hashtag is that it is any kind of community and we can all learn from each other and connect through, you know, you can't find people that grew up like me. I think what this conversation touches on is the idea of power. And Absolutely. How power is used 
And it's a, it's a question that I've kind of been exploring for myself with my own leader, because, you know, how did I give myself over to him so completely? And my trust and faith that he had the best intentions for me and wanted me to spiritually evolve and grow and be a better person. But I think J.R. Tolkien had it right. Like, you can't wear that ring of power without it affecting you. And so as these people who are in positions of authority or you know, are set up on a pedestal to be guides and, and teachers. There's something that happens with that projection of people, their, their, their followers, the flock, the, the people looking at, to this person for guidance. I think something happens that they take it in and it, they take in this, this projection, all this energy that people are putting towards this person, this one person, the priest, the spiritual teacher, whatever. And it amplifies whatever is broken inside of them. And if a person is a narcissist, it then amplifies that. And they don't really see so much other people, but what they are to them. What those other people are to them. Yeah. Yeah. For you. I was a tool. I was, I think Yanya Lalich uses the term deployable agent. Now, you know, my group was small and we weren't really, he didn't want a bunch of people, you know, after the first, I don't know, I was in for 30 years after the first phase, he really wanted to keep his group small. So it wasn't really about recruiting. It was more, you know, me bringing other people in for his entertainment, but they weren't to keep around. So in that way, you were a deployable agent for on his behalf. Sure, absolutely. I think there's something really interesting about how power and leadership can be corrupted. That I think is a, is a really key part of this conversation where, you know, something like the innocence, my innocence as, you know, like that part that moment, you know, in preparing for First Holy Communion that did rise from me, that was authentic with, an, in another situation, a spiritual, a priest or a spiritual teacher or a nun or whatever could take that experience and use that innocence, harness the innocence for their intent. And sometimes that intent is, is something that actually grows unconsciously. Like I honestly believe that even though there were problems in the group that I was with the teacher that I followed for 18 years, the first few years, there was a little bit of harm being done, but it was not, it wasn't nefarious. It wasn't until later when this teacher got to feel kind of the power of- He got the ring of power and it slowly slowly infected him. And that ring of power, like if we're holding it, it's it's something that ideally is something that we are continually, continually 
I think in, in ethical leadership, our job is to continually pass that ring around to the people who we are with. To and empower sure. others. And so exactly, to make sure that others have the opportunity to find their authentic voice. And that's what a true leader is about. It's, and I thought, this is where it gets tricky, is because I thought that that was actually something I was doing in the group I was involved in. I thought that my teacher was helping me to become a better person, to become a true woman of God, to become someone who was going to really be able to help others from the right place. But one of the techniques that I think is really important to watch out for is when there's this, what Robert J. Lifton calls the, the, the cult of confession, where we have to continually identify what's wrong with us. And by identifying it and outing it and stating it, we get to be purged. And that through, and, and this idea that it's through the purging of that negativity that we get to become more of who we are, that is what's problematic. Because this whole, and that's where things like the whole, you mentioned earlier, the evangelical movement, but, you know, this purity, wherever there's this like seeking purity, seeking something that is actually not humanly possible. It's really being human is what being human's all about, you know, like that we of course, and we get to explore that in a spiritual way. We get to explore that in a secular way. We get to explore that in a metaphorical way, in whatever way works for our unique, like creative self, rather than a doctrine that narrows that, that path. Can you talk a little more? You've mentioned this quite a bit about the difference between like then and now was you were sort of separated from yourself and that indoctrination or brainwashing is that thing that basically inceptions an idea in your head and you think it's yours, but it's not. And it's, and it's a separation from self. What is the difference between an idea that you think is yours an idea that you act that is actually yours? Go, Lisa. Yeah, I want to pipe in there because what happened with me is I, you know, I entered into my group a vulnerable, malleable 19 year old. And I think, you know, a lot of spaces look for people that are in one vulnerable state or another with the answers. You know, what I found myself doing, and this is, I think, something that's maybe more intrinsic to women, girls, you know, as teenagers, we're wanting to fit in with our social group. And I mean, as a kid growing up, I tried on country Western, I was a punk rocker, I was a metalhead, I did all these things to like wear the skin of the community I was trying to fit into. I think that women might do that more, but I don't know. But that's what I found myself doing as I'm integrating into this community is I'm reflecting what I think everybody, you know, we had 
you know, certain colors that we wore, certain types of clothes that we wore, you know, phrasing, wordage, the way we ate, you know, all of these things in the community shaped me to be one of us. I also want to just touch into the, the use of vulnerable states to indoctrinate because I... Yes, ma'am. I'm just wondering if I don't want to lose the thread that Catherine just asked about the like that difference. I think it's connected, but I'm just wondering if I could insert one thing, go to the different states, which I think is also really important. But like, what is it? Another way of phrasing the question you were asking, Catherine, is like, what is it that wakes us up to ourselves, And we know the difference unequivocally. And in my experience, and something that I have witnessed again and again, is that very often there's a waking up of conscience, that suddenly we start to recognize that what we are experiencing or what we're involved in is actually hurting people. And for me, it happened very quickly. I I witnessed, I was like completely indoctrinated. We had one, there was a big crisis in the organization. And I witnessed one of my esteemed leaders in the group who had decided to leave. And she was describing why it was that she had to leave. And there had been like lots and lots and lots and lots of talking going on in this last kind of last meeting with the last meet- the last leaders. But finally at the very end, she cut through. And what she described was being yelled at, berated, hour after hour after hour. And this is a person who had a profound history of trauma. And suddenly in my mind, this leader that I had put up on a pedestal, for him to yell at my beloved, even for five minutes, was unconscionable. If it were somebody else telling me that same story, who I think maybe deserved a little bit, of yelling, it wouldn't have had the same impact. But it was suddenly, there was this huge cognitive dissonance. Like a normal, healthy person wouldn't do that. Exactly. Basically. It it, It was unacceptable human behavior to treat someone who has, to treat this beautiful person who is an artist, a poet, a sensitive soul with a history of trauma in that way. And there was no doubt in my mind that she was telling the truth. And that's what caused the crack for me. It was not recognizing that I was being harmed, that came later, but recognizing that she was being harmed and treated in an inhumane way is what was the the light. So it was my conscience saying, that's not okay. It's just not okay. So basically you had a deep core value that was really buried down really deep, but it was very strong still. And this incident or this story awakened that core value and that allowed you to see this whole thing is starting to break down. It it, it was a whole house of cards, you know, Mm. that it was just from that moment on, it was a, for me, it was a pretty quick slide to Mm. being out 
I'm resonating with so much that you ladies are, are sharing. And just to, to continue that point, I've been in multiple cults, mostly in the evangelical spaces and some conspiracy theory cults as well. And the merging of the two, if you can imagine. And, you know, I have my little phrase that I say that that breaking point is almost like as if the leader, there's some type of major wounding to the individual to snap them out of it. And, you know, kind of going back, Lisa, to what you were talking about with conspiracy theories, I find a lot of people who've been down the rabbit hole and live in that world. You know, if you think about even, you know, the events from January 6th and things of that nature, you know, I said a lot of these people look at the former president like it, he's their father. And until they get to the point where there's such a wounding, a, such a disappointment, such a breaking this will kind of like snap them out of that spell that they're in to actually consider. I say it's like almost like smelling salt and a lot to process after that. But because you've been so indoctrinated, particularly if you've been in the evangelical spaces, there's so many references for you to continue to endure and to suffer for Christ's sake. And so even if when you're in that honor authority, honor authority, submit to authority because they watch for your soul. So even if there's times when you consider this is not right, I don't want to be in this anymore, the trauma is starting to come to a head, people will dismiss it and spiritually bypass it themselves because of the indoctrination. So sometimes it takes a snapping for you, um, Jarette, it was that. For others, like myself, it took the leader rejecting me over and over again, gaslighting me over and over again the abandonment, you know, just so many different uh, variables that caused me to just break on the inside and say, I can't do this anymore. Hit the rock bottom, so to speak. There's so many levels before a person can actually get there because there's so many holes and tunnels to, even if you start to awaken and say, I don't, this, this doesn't feel right. There's somebody else. There's something else on social media to keep pulling the person back in. And it takes a lot to get to the point to say, I know for me, because that was part of my journey, I have to tell myself, I don't need to know everything. And it's okay. There's power in not knowing. I don't have to have this trauma response where I'm trying to figure out everything so I can protect myself because I don't have control over everything that goes on in the world. And that's been my safety to keep myself where I'm not going down, especially in 2022. So many unanswered questions, you know, when when leadership doesn't answer and we've been inconvenienced, it causes people to search. That's another vulnerability. Lisa was was about to, to get on where I don't know what's happening and I'm scared and I feel unsafe within my being. So what is the answer? Is it a guru? You have the answers. Let me go to you because I can't find it within myself. And I'm kind of just throwing everything together. but. Coming back to personal power is so very important because I didn't know I had that, that I had my own power. I had my own choice. I had my own will. I easily allowed people to manipulate me, control me. I didn't know. I just, my heart was, I want to have a relationship with God. I want to be a better human. I, I want to grow in my faith. And like you said, something as innocent as that the leadership took that and, you know, perverted it and things of that nature, but coming out of that and encouraging people to find their own autonomy is such a beautiful 
healing part of the story. Just building on that vulnerability and that separation from self, what did that look like from you to be separated from yourself? And then you said earlier that creativity was a way that you came back to yourself. And I think that happened for you too, Jarette, with your writing too. What, yeah. What was the, what was the disintegration? What did that look like? What did it feel like? And then what was it like to come back to you? So where I was headed, I'm going to just go with what Nikki was just saying, because I think I can like grab that. And it leads to me, it leads me to the question of why are we looking for a spiritual answer anyways? What's this all about? My brain why is are... exploding right now. Why <laughs> are we looking for a spiritual answer? <laughs> right. Right. So what is, what's that all about? And I mean, to me, if you just pull back and look at our place in the universe, we're little thin skinned animals scurrying around on a speck of dust in the middle of a explosion <laughs> or whatever this is. And we have the capacity to, to think about things. And when you look at the magnitude of what's out there, it's freaking scary. And we want some comfort. We want to believe that there's a higher power looking out for us, because if there's not, then WTF, right? So there's that nut of vulnerability. Where I was going to head into with the idea of vulnerable states, you know, someone entering into a group in a vulnerable state and the use or leverage of vulnerability for indoctrination. You know, it's something that I'm just having some aha moments for my own story about where I was at as a single mom of a one-year-old entering into this group, but also how the leader of my group orchestrated some vulnerable states to keep us there, to create the mythology of our, of our group. And I, I recently listened to a podcast called Cover Story by a woman who was exploring shamanistic states and this whole issue of the use of psychedelics for therapy. And she was involved in or got sucked into this community, kind of the burning man, spiritual guide, you know, guiding people, guiding people, you know, that aren't credentialed or anything. And she talked about an experience that happened to her under the quote unquote guidance of a self-appointed shaman. And that listening to that, to her story tapped my memory, my recollection of my leader using psychedelic states to, and not only psychedelic states, but we did this process uh, called rebirthing that was, it's a breath work exercise that's creates vulnerable states, all these different things that create these vulnerable states. But the, the, the times that we were together on the beach, you know, bonding this tribe together, these experiences actually were the glue that kept my group together for as long as it 
did because we felt like we were spiritual warriors together on this, you know, vast universe that we had been together for lifetimes or, you know, this idea. And I guess the thing that really strikes me is that that's one of the things we need to look at in cultic involvement, the need for community, number one, and the leverage of vulnerable states for bonding, number two. And when we leave one tribe, it creates an opening for another. And I think that's why people then jump into other, maybe very different looking groups. You know, if somebody's leaving evangelicalism, they might want to get into something that's more like a wellness situation, right? Or the therapy or whatever. They're looking for, again, the community. But it's so easy to, to transition into something else that's harmful if you don't really look at, you don't take the time to own your own self and really figure out who you are. And I think that's where I can now bring in the thread of creativity because one of the things that was really intrinsic to the group that I was in is the idea of creativity. And it was a lot about the leader's creativity. And, you know, he's a photographer. And so, you know, when we had this creative lifestyle, and a lot of the women were like muses and they did their painting and their art and their pottery and this and that. And what I saw, I wasn't in the position to do that because of kind of the, the my place as, uh, I guess, house manager, cook, you know, my creativity was really sort of stifled. My creativity was leveraged to create a, you know, beautiful environment for our community. And my struggle often was I wanted to express myself and I didn't have that voice. And it was actually the, it was the bump up against my wanting to express myself and having it squashed down that made me reach outside the group. And it started with little things. I would have my own little creative projects on the side. I did made jewelry. I did my own photography. And the final thing was building this house. I was planning on making this house and I could see it in my mind. And I, you know, I was creating this space. And I had had some distance from the leader and because he was at one of our other properties and I had the summer to like kind of formulate this, this thing to, to see it in my brain. And then when he came back and the control started, I realized there was just no way I would ever be able to create this, to actually make this and have it not be co-opted and brought in to under his vision. And that was one of the things that was just like, I can never be who I actually joined the group to be if I stay here. And that was just like, bing, I've got to go. I've got to go because I've got so much inside of me that will never express because of that co-opting of autonomy, that co-opting of harnessing of my spirit, my spark. Your core value was threatened. Your deep self was awakened in that creative moment. 
And it was more important to protect that than to be in this environment and please this person. And I honestly think that 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 process that happened, the co-opting of my creative spark or my energy happens in all kinds of groups in all kinds of ways, you know, the church choir, what are those people missing by not using their voice the way that they might be called to use it? There's so much, there's a quote and I'm going to find it because I think it's just stunning from one of our collaborators, Joffrey Wallace. And when somebody else is talking, I'm going to, I'm going to read it because it's just an amazing group of words. (laughs) It's like, there's so much that's missing for society at large when there are systems that hold individuals down. Keeping individuals down, but also preventing us from engaging in a wholehearted, holistic, embodied, passionate way to solve the problems of the world today. When we're in that kind of separated from ourself, we actually can't even see what the real problems are because we're in an altered, controlled environment. Just to merge both beautiful points, you know, that's why I kind of encourage clients, you know, or, or in clubhouse rooms where we speak on these topics, if you connect with a mentor, a leader, a pastor, what have you, and they're not pointing you back to your own autonomy, your personal power, your choice, your will, your creativity, run. You know, these leaders, back to what Lisa was saying about the vulnerability, a lot of people come to these groups, gurus, leaders, and they say, you know, I just had a loss, a loss of a loved one or, or a job or some tragic situation happened in my life. Or a lot of people say, I don't know how to lead my life. I don't want to actually take responsibility to lead my life. Lisa, can you do that for me? Jarette, you have some wisdom. Can you, you know, can you tell me where to go? And instead of taking our, and that's something I had to work through and actually spend that time with myself, like you were saying, Lisa, to figure out, okay, I've been in five different quotes. I kept going to one after another and I didn't know. And I I had to say, okay, Nikki, what's the common denominator here? The abuse, not my fault. Why am I keep being drawn to these? I was drawn to power because I didn't understand my personal power. I was drawn to someone telling me what to do because I didn't take the responsibility of my own life. And I had to sit with that and work through these things, educating myself on cults and abusive leaders. That was a big part of it. But education is not recovery. I had to work through these things that kept being energetic ties to pull me into these groups. And, you know, that was the breaking additionally for me to to then say, wait a minute, you have a voice, you have beauty, you have, it's beautiful in here. It's not dark and ugly and sinful. Like so many people have told me. And once you get to that part, man, you can fly. You can find your purpose for yourself, how to connect with other people in this world. The world is not as dark and safe as these groups make you to think. So you can only remain there. No, there's so much beauty and wisdom out there first in here. And then out there, and that is the part of doing the work, you know, just not just education, but working on yourself. As Nikki was speaking, 
I was feeling like my body reacting because I was reacting based on the cult that I grew up in, the Bible-based cult that I grew up in, which what autonomy was a dirty word, desires, having your own desires, a separate from the group that were not for the benefit of the group that was considered sinful and wrong. And so I would love to hear from you guys when you have encountered people who've come out of evangelical spaces, high demand evangelical spaces, what are the things you see people struggling with the most and what have you seen help them in their recovery process or have you gotten to witness that? That's a beautiful question. And I think where I've had the honor of being with people in that space as they've made a separation, made a step away, is mostly through their, what Nikki was talking about, finding their voice. And by, by creating a space where there is a container, so th this actually has mostly taken place in the facilitated uh, writing workshops that I offer called Writing to Reckon. And again and again and again, just creating a simple container with a few, a few thoughts about how controlling environments work, how one's autonomy might have been compromised. Like I'll you know, I, I usually begin with just some statement, like, you know, a few sentences about some aspect of a controlling, abusive um, environment, and then offer a writing prompt. And again and again and again, in this environment, when someone has the courage to put pen to paper or you know, fingers to the keyboard and just let the words flow onto the paper that without worrying about, you know, them being judged or criticized in any way, there's zero criticism. It just moves me to tears like every single time. And it also inspires me because every single person is unique. And the way that they find their way to express the voice that may have been taken, that may have been, Lisa used the word stifled earlier, you know, that may have been stifled or strangled or withheld or, or criticized. But just to let those words come out is one of the most affirming experiences. And and sometimes for some people, it's not words. It might be images, you know, it might be movement. You know, that again, we're circling back to the creative spark, you know, that creativity, however it works for you, it might be through cooking, it might be through sewing, it might be through being, for me and for many people who I work with, having an opportunity to recharge in nature, to have some quiet, where there's nobody else's voice. I think it's very, very, very important for us to create opportunities where we're not listening to podcasts, 
where we're not as wonderful as podcasts are, you know, where we're not listening to the news, where we're not listening to our beloved partner or sisters, brothers, mothers, daughters, you know, that we just can be with our own self and hear our own voice. That's why there's a subreddit called Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. Who has their best ideas in the shower? Raise your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's for you where hashtag I got out. I got out game. Wait, you were in the shower? Lisa? I think that's, yeah, that's when the word, when the <laughs> phrase came. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> that's fantastic. I want to read this from Joffrey Wallace, his book, A Voice from Inside, Notes on Religious Trauma Syndrome. When a thought is repressed based on the thinker's assumption that its presence in awareness is symptomatic of their inherent sinfulness or disapproval by God, entire architectures of thought remain unmanifested in consciousness. Mm. So do any subsequent architectures derived from them ad infinitum. This presents an astounding opportunity cost when multiplied by the billions of human minds held captive by religious belief systems and restricted from reaching their creative potential. Whoa. Oh, that makes me cry. Yeah. If you think about all the people who are trapped for so long and yeah, I just, so we're missing, we're missing people. We're missing. Yeah. You know how all of us can bring what we can each bring forward. I also wanted to touch on the idea that Nikki had about the self-realizations and how that is such a necessary part of, you know, our waking up, but also weave in there this idea of activism and survivor advocacy. It's been a topic in, you know, a therapy session I was in and another, another class that I was in, how important it is to balance those two things, the self-care and the, the wanting to change the world, right? We tell our, our little byline is tell your story, change the world. Well, you have to feel into what that story is and allow that to really mature and having these kinds of conversations stimulates those ideas and and self-reflection and all of these things. You can't remain healthy if you're always, you know, putting out all the time. So it's so important in, in what we're doing to like, take a break. Yeah. And that Take advocacy a break. is a form of self-expression, but if it's all go- outgoing, that mm-hmm. can take a toll if it's not being replenished. And that's, totally. Both of those things are necessary. But in between like that self-care and advocacy, which is kind of maybe more outward, self-care more inward, to me, one of the middle places is the listening is the taking in of each other's stories. And through that process of hearing our stories, like I am so moved. Catherine, we didn't get to hear about, well, we heard a little bit about your story today. Nikki, to hear pieces of your story, like 
this is this activity, listening to each other and being open and not, not like thinking we know something about another person, but really like asking the questions, creating the space to take in their story. And even online in the social media space to acknowledge each other for the stories that we take in and thank each other. That's part of that exchange. That's part of being, I think, a leader in our own life. You know, where we are sharing the ring of power is getting, you know, passed around. Beautiful. Yeah, and that idea of autonomy does not mean dismissing community, ignoring community, not loving or caring for community. It actually, as the quote that Lisa read, it mm-hmm. it fosters community and encourages community. It builds up community. It's a byproduct of, of being attuned with ourselves. As we wind down, Jarette, I would love to hear you just talk a little bit about your book and why you wrote it, what it's about, and where people can find it. Thank you for that. Yeah, my book is An Everyday Cult. I wrote it because I had to. I, I'm an educator, so I had to weave in um, my personal experience with what I, I learned, what I love. And yeah, people can find it, you know, all the normal places, indie books, um, booksellers, bookstores, and of course, Amazon. And I can announce that to yesterday in my inbox, I just received all the audio files for my audio book. Yeah. It's really, I have a coming. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. So I, you know, I, I read the book, worked with this really wonderful producer here in Vermont. And so we're in process and within, I think within 30 days, it should be live and available. Woo-woo. So exciting. Thanks. And I have to say, it was so, in, in my experience, I literally had like a strangling experience where my voice was shut down and it, while I was in the group. And so for me to speak, to, you know, to tell my story, to do it in audio and to own it completely, nobody else has the rights to it. It is my book and it is so like... I can't tell you what a thrill it is. It's so exciting. Very, very exciting. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you guys both for being here. Thank you, Nikki, for joining us. And um, I'm excited to share this. Did you guys have any final words that you want to say? Parting words for survivors? One point that I did want to circle back to, and that is the healing process between family members that we didn't touch on because while I got out.org, my advocacy for hashtag I got out, that was ignited in a large part because of the schism that I had with my daughter. I'm also so overjoyed to say that it also was the healer between me and my daughter. And we're now like in a really good point. Mm, I'm so happy to hear that. That feels like the, the climax to the story. Well, thank you guys so much. I will put all the information about 
Biagara movement links to your book Jurat in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to sharing this with folks. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you, Nikki. It resonates so much with your story. Like um, I was a single mom. So most of the cults I was in, my daughter has been through them with me. You know, the first cult outside of my family, that leader is my daughter's grandma. And mm-hmm. just can imagine <laughs> the leaving process and everything like that. She'll be 21 in May now. So, you know, a lot of deprogramming for the both of us, mm-hmm. finding ourselves and allowing her to find her journey yeah, and what absolutely. she feels her expression is and, you know, hands off. And that was kind of <laughs> difficult because I felt so guilty about, you know, bringing her through, but I understand that dynamic. And there was a lot of this for a while. Mm-hmm. Why did you bring me to these places? You know, so mm-hmm. I, I resonate with you and I'm so happy to hear the healing aspect, you know, it's not easy, but when we can get even a slice of it, it's just so precious. I'm grateful to connect with you guys and, and Catherine bringing me on. Um, this has definitely been a pleasure. So thank you, ladies. <laughs> thank the you. Journeys, the journeys that we go through, you know, my daughter was six months old when I started. Mm, so you guys were all parents in your- I said, oh, mm-hmm. I'm a grandma. That's yeah, that's, a, that's another of- branch topic I want to explore. We had one another podcast. Yeah. (laughs) We had one, one podcast about with a parent sharing what it was like for her to realize that she had instigated the spiritual abuse of her children, uh, because she thought that's what God wanted her to do. And it was very powerful. And yeah, I want, I would love to explore that topic more on what it's like to be a parent waking up and knowing that you brought your kids. I know someone who you might really appreciate interviewing, who's really passionate about trying to make connections with people who homeschooled. Mm. Um, And that whole reality, um, Mm -hmm. you know, both of her children, she homeschooled, you know, she was in for, I think, 20 Mm -hmm. years. Um, And- So easy to brainwash in that context. (laughs) So easy to brainwash. Oh. Yeah, you know, yeah I, mean, I would love, I would love to connect. Yeah, that's another probably exploration. The homeschool. I'm learning that too. <laughs> so many, so many different avenues. Well, just to say that that this person, um, Christina, has searched for trying to connect with people who have homeschooled. It's kind of like the QAnon people are not talking yet. Oh. Yeah, people are not talking yet. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm talking. Yeah, do do an email introduction. I would love to. Yeah, it would be really cool to do a, a homeschool, just a homeschool one. Can I ask a quick question as to why you guys think that ladies that the QAnon people and the conspiracy people aren't really talking yet? Do you feel like some of them are in a processing state right now and are just still kind of shell shock and it's just a matter of time? Yes. I think it's that. And I also think that the fact that QAnon and well, and that we're at a point now in human evolution and history where we know so much about manipulative dynamics that they actually have the same language. They are using Mm -hmm. the exact same language that we use 
this was something I almost was tempted to kind of go into, but like when I got out, it wasn't actually cult recovery books that helped me the most. It was learning, it was like thinking fast and slow, Daniel Kahneman, who's one of my heroes. You know, it is looking at the work of Robert Cialdini, who is influenced. Like we are, a human species, we are easily influenced. And so we can now take that, what we know about how easy it is to influence each other and, you know, control each other, but we also now have the language. Mm -hmm. So we're steeped in it. My sister, my evangelical Christian sister who is homeschooling, you know, her, all of her children, um, she uses the language that I have been coerced, that I am a sheep, that I've been brainwashed by the government to make the choices. Mm. And look at, so I look at, I study her videos that she sends me so that I can understand how she's thinking and how she's using that. It's a huge issue. I think it's, yes, we're going to slowly come out of it, but it's going to take some hard, hard work of really understanding human vulnerability and human, how humans work, how we think, how we think. Mm -hmm. My headphones are about tapped. I'm hearing their <laughs> draining sound. I'm glad they lasted. Sound. I I'm know, glad right? they lasted. But it was yeah. so good. Thank you guys so much. Social media, you I ladies, and find you. This is yes. not the end of the conversation. No, no, no. We'll have more. Okay. Yes. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.